Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Our fall season kicks off in late August, and our entire spring season is available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Today's episode is hosted by Ian Brown, feature writer for The Globe and Mail, and the best-selling author of 60, The Beginning of the End, or The End of the Beginning, and The Boy in the Moon, A Father's Search for His Disabled Son. In just a moment, he'll introduce us to Catherine Bradbury, a senior news director at CBC, and her acclaimed memoir, The Bright Side, 12 Months, Three Heartbreaks, and One Maybe Miracle. Here's Ian Brown in conversation with Catherine Bradbury. For most of her career in the Canadian media, as everything from senior news director at the CBC to weekend and national editor of the Globe and Mail and editor-in-chief of the Metro newspapers, Catherine Bradbury was renowned as one of the best editors in the country. With the publication this spring of her memoir, The Bright Side, she has instantly established herself as one of its best writers as well. The Bright Side is a moving but also hilarious chronicle of a particularly daunting year, the year of her 60th birthday, in which she suffered any number of trials and tribulations and losses and near losses, only to emerge on the other side a different, deeper, and maybe happier person. She's speaking to me from her house in downtown Toronto. Hello, Catherine Bradbury. Hello, Ian Brown. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Sure. Uh, Look, I I think this is a first for me. Not only am I interviewing an author, I'm interviewing the author inside one of her characters, number nine, your beautiful and stylish house, uh, as it's known in your book, The Bright Side. Did you start that your house would be a character in this nonfiction book? You know, a lot of people have referred to my house as a character. And a lot of people have talked to me about my house. And and I'm not even sure I knew at the end that my house was a character in the book. I, I knew that it was a character in my life. And I knew how, how important it was to me. Um, I was just rereading uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice. And um, I, I have to say... Um, my heart beat a little faster for Lizzie when she realized, when she tells her sister Jane that she realized the moment she fell in love with Darcy was when she saw Pemberley, his beautiful estate for the first time. And I kind of have that love of a beautiful home in common with Lizzie as if there there weren't enough reasons to love her already. So uh, yeah, I do love the house and I guess that love just came into into the book as a character. Right, even though when the book starts, the house is literally falling down onto your head. Literally falling down on my head. There is a um, 
there's a there's a have you heard of the um, Austrian physicist called Wolfgang Pauli? Wolfgang Pauli uh, in the 1800s or something. He was famous because whenever he walked into a lab, beakers would explode and uh, and lights would pop and, and Bunsen burners would overflow and catch fire, whatever Bunsen burners do. And he was eventually banned from scientific labs. He was a physicist because, because of the chaos just walking through would cause. And that really was me and my house in this year. It was it was catastrophic. It was, you know, I'd finally wrested the house from my husband in our divorce settlement. And as I say in the book, it was, it was as if the house itself um, revolted against me. It, the, the tree came down in a storm, the, the central vac caught fire, the, the basement pipes flooded. I constantly got locked out, constantly got locked out because I had this very secure but tricky German lock system. So yeah, it was, and of course the wiring, I had knob and tube wiring that kept electrocuting people, including my children at one point, which I had to then rip out. That's how the year began. So I, I rip out. That's just how the book starts. You know, it goes on from there. It goes downhill, downhill from there. Now, so before we get to the book, um, which is which is compelling, uh, uh, a quick read and a, and funny and 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 moving, as I said, um, I, I want to ask you something more general. If, having been an editor for so long, and having seen the hair tearing, body wringing, agony of some of that that some of your writers went through to produce, never mind books, even articles. And I'm not mentioning any names when I when I say this. What on earth made you want to write a book on your own? You know, I don't quite know. I it kind of came over me. It, it sounds a bit circular, but somehow going through this year, this transformation year, to sound corny, uh, uh, kicked me out the other side of it and made me want to be a writer. I, I couldn't let go of the idea of this year. I couldn't stop thinking about how I needed to tell the story of it. I, I carried it around for several years and, and, and then I wrote it. So it, it kind of the answer to that is this year did that to me, despite having witnessed your torture firsthand Ian Brown, sometimes at the hand of my editing. Yes, yeah. I was going to say, I, you know, obviously you're a you're a you're a bear for punishment. <laughs> All right, so the, um, th there are uh, throughout the 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 bright side, there are references to other writers. Uh, you know, Margaret Lawrence, Carol Shields, Atwood. There are also to plays, also to TV shows, you know, Spinoza and reference, et cetera. A lot of uh, Jungian psychology. Um, it, you have a very full professional life. I, I know that. You're at the CBC. You've got a pandemic going on. You had it going on all last year, the Trump thing. The, there was no end to work. Um, you have two kids. Uh, you, you have lots and lots of friends. All of this shows up in the bright side. When do you have time to read? I mean, do, do you have a, a regular reading routine? Do you set time off to take in all this extra cultural stuff as well as everything else that makes it into the book? Well, I didn't read all of those things as I was writing the book, although I did read a lot. I actually read more when I was writing this book than I than I have before 
or since? I don't know. Do you find that? When, I mean, you when you write, do you read more? When you're writing a book, uh-huh. are you reading? Uh-huh. Essential. Every time I, 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 you know, start to tear my hair out, I, I like to read something and maybe that gets me back on track. Well, actually, it was you who gave me a, a really good piece of advice when I was writing this book because I thought, well, what I have to do is read memoirs. I have to read everything that's been written. And I read The Liars Club and I had a complete nervous breakdown. I went to bed for the rest of the day because it was so good and it was so much better and so much more import and you know tragic than anything I had to say. And you said, do not read the thing that you're writing. Don't read uh, memoirs if you're writing a memoir. Read everything else but that. And I, I just took it as gospel and from then on, I didn't, I, I didn't read another memoir and it, it was really good advice. And, and, you know, everything you read as you write, it does kind of find its way in one way or another, doesn't it? it it's like, mm-hmm. it's not, not plagiarizing, but the idea or the anger. I mean, at one point I was reading the Ferranti novels and the rage of her characters at some point made it into, you know, one of my chapters of I became angry about everything. I, I found that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a strange osmosis. Um, one of, for me, the deftest aspects of the bright side is your portraits of people, um, and not just you know ex-husbands and disappointing boyfriends, um, but you know the the most dangerous kind of character, family members. Um, you, you know, there's your sister Laura, who's organized and thoughtful and reliable, but occasionally slightly uptight maybe, and there's your sister Anne, who is more excitable and infinitely more opinionated, but also unflappable. There's your brothers, one of whom has like really life-threatening addiction problems. They're all in the book. They're all described quite candidly. How did you do that and tell the truth and still end up with a family that'll talk to you? (laughs) Well, you know, I think the publishing of this book was a psychological experience as much as it was a literary one. Um, uh, my siblings all read it when it came out and there were a lot of conversations. There there were a lot of conversations. Um, You know, one of them, I won't name them, I put little colored tags on every place where where they were mentioned and then went over them with me. (laughs) They're like sign here from the lawyer's office. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but uh, I had a lot of respect toward those conversations. I'm glad I wrote the book when I did at the age I am because I'm 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 less uh, ruthless than I was in my 40s say. So I had I had a lot of respect for what they had to say and I did want to talk it through with them because you know my sisters for example are many things. My sisters are um are smart and well traveled and well read and brilliant cooks and have beautiful houses but in but in this book they're one or two things. I I pin them under the page like a butterfly and they're stuck with that for forever and and i i get that that's that's not uh it's not necessarily how they see themselves and my brother tim said I-, I love the story you've told of our family it's not the story i would have told of our family but y- you know i like the way you told it so um yeah i i'm i'm pretty um pretty open to having conversations about how people feel after the fact. And of course, David, my brother, who has a whole chapter devoted to him, who was very near death um, when this book began and had a truly a miraculous recovery after 20 or more years of almost living on the streets from alcoholism. 
he had to read the his portrayal um, of years and years that he basically didn't remember. And, and he uh, was the one I was most worried about, of course, and he was silent for some time. I, I knew he had finished it and he didn't say a word. And then finally he called me on my birthday just this past February and he said, um, thank you. He said, uh, you know, you've reminded me how bad things really were and, and I can use that sometimes. Well, that's good because now that we've, we've established that everybody's talking to you, can we talk about the promising new man? Sure. So he's a very nice guy. He sweeps you off your recently divorced feet. <laughs> One of the things you like is quoting, and I'm quoting directly, his ability to quickly observe what people were most interested in and play to it, close quote. Uh, he wins over your sister with his analysis of left-wing politics. He captures the attention of your son with his football knowledge. He even assembles your your barbecue. I must say he reminded me of that old joke, you know, that old sexist joke that what, what's the definition of a perfect woman? You know, she makes, you know, rapturous love all night and then she turns into a six pack and a ham sandwich. And he he, he assembles your barbecue and, and, and that is kind of like some locale dressing. But in the end, it, 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 it that, that quality turns out not to be an asset what, what happened well i don't precisely know what happened that's a bit of a mystery in the book um i think it all became a bit too real for him you know i'd always been drawn to the the don't fence me and reprobate type man um with a big personality and, and a lot of brains and and um uh, this this guy was something different. This guy uh, adored me. That that was a nice change. He 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 really really adored me, and I I started to think that I it was my turn, and I deserved that finally. Um, but I'd always been suspicious of that kind of a guy when I was young, and I think now that I was right to be suspicious. Um, I think that that you know my feeling as a young woman was that. There's a certain kind of adoration. It's nice to be admired, but adored is something that people lose themselves in. They, they don't really know who they are, I think, those people. They, they don't have an outline. And, and so they, they, they plunge into you. And, and of course, they, you can't make them, you can't create, you can't create something out of them any more than they can create something out of themselves. And when that doesn't happen for them, they, they move on. Um, so I, I think that's, that's what went on. So now I'm back to the, you know, hopeless reprobates. Right. What does this single 60-ish uh, woman end up looking for in a relationship? At least, and, you know, in this case, a, a cisgendered, you know, relationship. Um, now, you mean? Or, or, or like? Yeah, now. Now. Like now you've had the experience of, of, of you know, the... Um, uh, the promising new man and and you've and it's fallen apart and you, there you are you you know you're a woman with a house and in Jane Austen's terms you you know you're a woman with an income you're God you're you're so what do you at the age of your age uh, in this stage of your life in the bright side what having been through to the bright side what do you look for does a woman with a house need a man I wrote an article about that in the Toronto Star and I have to say that most for most women, the answer was no. <laughs> but um, I, you know, when I think about a man now, 
I have this recurring fantasy of driving in a car and the man is driving and, and he's, he's got a good soundtrack playing and, and it's very calm. And, and maybe I, I, I reach out and, and, and touch his hand. Like there's something, just something calm, understood, tender. <laughs> maybe I I'm not swatting your hand away from the, from the station change. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Turn right, slow down. Yeah. Um, you get uh, divorced uh, in the course of this book. Yeah. Uh, and your mother and father, on the other hand, whom you write about, who were married for more than 50 years, uh, they, of course, stay together. Has, and you, you write about this a little bit, is most interesting. Has the way women choose partners changed between your mother's era and your own? Oh, well, sure. I mean, your mother, for instance, your, your mother decided early on, you say, I'm quoting you again, that choosing a partner is a way of choosing your future self, the self you will become together. I mean, that seemed to work for them. They stayed together for a long time. Would that be acceptable, successful today? Yeah, probably not. Um, I I do think that my mother needed lifting out of a fairly dark childhood, and my father had the optimism and the energy to do that. And I and I think he needed a little bit of straightening out. I think he was a bit wild quit school, you know, very young high school. Um, and so I think that uh, they were able to use their marriage as a resource toward each other, to become something um, a little bit bigger than either of them would have been alone and, and to, to develop together. I don't know if people, do you think people go into that, a marriage like that anymore? I think it's a good way to go into one. I really, I really do, especially when, you don't need property. You don't need that as a reason to get married. Women have careers. Women have property. Men have careers. Men have property. You don't need to merge um, property. Going back to Jane Austen, the way the way the way her characters needed to. So if you don't need that, and you're pretty self fulfilled, um, then yeah, I think it's a completely different, completely different equation. It is interesting. I mean, as you say, in those days, things were simpler. There were fewer roles for women, and they tended to be very standardized and stereotypical roles. And now, of course, as you say, people can be more independent, but they could. One of the things I like about the bright side is that it's very unconventional in a lot of ways. And one of the unconventional points of view you seem to reach at one point is maybe going it together. Maybe our emphasis on independence, on on equal, not equality, but equity, sometimes distracts us from the pleasure or the ch pleasant challenge of a of a more mutual relationship. Did that is that what you you came to after after studying their relationship and their and their departures from this orb? Yeah, in a way. I mean, I myself do very badly at that. Um, as, as is pretty clear in the book, you know, I, I divorce at the beginning, I embark on a promising relationship that ends in disaster. I, uh, 
and and nothing has has presented itself since. So like I, my horoscope woman who who uh, comes and goes in the book when she did my horoscope chart said that I had Venus in Capricorn, which uh, did not bode well for love, and and that seems to be true. Somebody said to me once. I was talking about my daughter, and I said, I, she's, I think she might be um, better at work than at love. Uh, this was early on. She's actually very good at both now. And, and somebody who was listening said, like her mother. And, and I, I was a little bit offended because um, it didn't seem fair. But if I look at the evidence, <laughs> I have to say, fair enough. Fair comment. Oh. Oh. Um, you, <clears throat> you lose both your parents. Not at the same time, but but very closely in sequence, uh, in the course of the bright side, and and you tell those stories beautifully, and and with your trademark humor, um, I love your characterization of your mother as as a, as a being a demanding person, but a, a demanding person who always had a qualification, sort of asking for an English muffin, but not too much butter. I, I you know that that I thought was like the perfect detail. Um, but your mother dies in a in a slightly more protracted and lingering fashion. She dies first, but it takes her longer to die. And in the course of these very of these very dramatic chapters, um, there are disagreements between you and your siblings about how long she should be kept alive and whether she should get any sustenance at all in the form of, in fact, applesauce. And it sounded like like a, a standoff that could have gone you know, uh, interstellar pretty fast. Tell me about that. It did go interstellar pretty fast. And I've since talked to other people whose parents have had, you know, I mean, she, she took three weeks to die. To me, that's not so long. To some of my siblings, it, it was a preposterous length of time, like just uh, epic. Um, so, uh, but I've talked to other people who have similar massive battles over things like applesauce. I, I wanted her to have um, sustenance. She couldn't uh, take in food anymore. Um, she had a esophageal stricture, which prevented her from really being able to eat or even drink water um, at the, in those last three weeks. But uh, I thought that it was important that we give her subcutaneous fluids and do everything we could to keep her going. I mean, she's talking, she's sitting up and talking. She's not in a coma or anything. She's asking for, you know, sippy cup and uh, uh, all kinds of things. So it seemed pretty obvious that we should do everything we could to keep her alive. But I was pretty much in the minority on that. And at a certain point when we were gathered together to talk about next steps, which I was not uh, very happy about because next steps meant moving her to a hospice where she would die. Um, my younger sister uh, said to my older sister, as we were disputing some detail, I'm, I'm sick of your goddamn bullshit. She actually said, I'm sick of your goddamn fucking bullshit. But I, I to be nice, because she didn't. What they cleaned that up? I cleaned it up. Yeah, yeah. But uh yeah, so then that, you know, you put it on paper and you think, oh, well, people say, you know, I'm saying your bullshit all the time. But it was it was huge. It was a huge moment. It's still a huge moment in our family. We, You know, you don't say things like that to your family, your siblings, especially with such intent and such anger. It took I don't know if you you've got a lot of siblings. Have you ever been, have you ever had those kinds of moments? And your parents both died, you know, with all of you around and. 
Well, they died with certainly with some of us around. Um, uh, but my mother uh, died actually on the possibly in her living room alone with my dad freaking out. But I, it, I guess what's interesting is you also your brother, your one of your brothers, Tim, the older brother. Um, he seems to take the direct approach. At one point, he's talking about. Your father, I think, goes to the doctor and the doctor says something. And like most older men who are, in fact, dying, he chooses to believe that he's perfectly fine and that he didn't have an operation. Therefore, he's healthy. And Tim turns to him and says, Dad, you're dying. And and the, all of you turn on him, telling him not to be such a... I mean, th this is the kind of thing I guess people have to deal with all the time in, in the death of their parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, differences in style. I think differences in style. Yeah, my father was 94 and uh, and the doctor said his body was giving up on him and, and he was, uh, you know, not a little, had some dementia and he was so happy that we were all there. He, he said, oh, isn't it lovely of you to all come? And that's when Tim said, you're dying, dad, you're dying. And uh, we were furious. And it's like, but why? He said, I don't, he said, I don't want anybody to sugarcoat it for me. When, when, when I'm old, I want, I want only the hard facts, but our dad wasn't really like that. He, he, he was a very, uh, he was the king of the bright side. He, he saw everything through um, a very happy lens. Although um, uh, I, I don't wanna make light of his point of view. He, he made a decision to, um, to, be happy with what he had rather than what he didn't have to be happy with what was right in front of him with rather than he should have had, or should have had. was the death of one parent harder than the death of of the of the other i mean does the does the death of your mother say leave you with a different kind of grief than the death of your father Yes, and I don't think the answer for that would be the same for every sibling. Five, there are five of us, but for me, my mother's death was huge and, and still is in many ways. And my mother is very much present with me. You know, she's sitting around in my brain, swinging her legs, making comments about whether I should wear the pink top or the yellow top. I mean, she's she's still very... Present. I see she chose the yellow top today, <laughs> did she? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so she, uh, it was hard. And in fact, um, I think of all the characters in the book, the only character who really has an arc aside from myself is my mother. And uh, as I wrote her, I began to understand uh, the ways in which uh, I fended her off much of my life as one does a mother, you know. You need the distance, you need the space, you need them to stop crowding your head. Um, uh, but that how she stayed very present. She was very present in my life and and a, and a, an ally in ways that I hadn't really known. And I, I only figured that out as I was writing the book. And, and so she developed with me as the book continues. So she's an ally. And, and so what is your father? What does he become? Um, I be I for, sort of forgive my father for being so cheerful. Um, um, you know, my the book's called the my own bright darkness, as I think most people's you, you have to. Um, doesn't mean much. Catherine, you're, if, you're 
Catherine, you're breaking up. Repeat that answer, okay? Okay. Um, my own bright side um, has a lot of darkness, and I I think that most people's do. I think you have to to go through some some you know pretty tough work to understand who you are, and um, and what your motivations are to to get to something um, a little more optimistic. I had always seen my father as just kind of a knee-jerk cheerful, just Mr. Happy. And um, uh, in the, as I wrote the book, I saw that also his happiness had more texture to it than I had thought. That, um, that as I said a little earlier, it was a decision of his to, to choose what he had, not what he wished he had. And I think that's a pretty sophisticated way to uh, go forward in life. Uh, so I, I, I ended up thinking he had quite a lot more depths. And, and my depiction of my father as cheerful, um, my, both my brothers took quite a lot of exception to. They, they really felt, uh, as my brother Tim in particular was reading the book, he, he thought, thought I had dad wrong. Uh, but I think they had a different kind of relationship. I think they did talk a lot about quite um, thoughtful things in a way that perhaps he, he didn't as much with his daughters. Um, so, so yeah, he, he, he grew and changed for me too. Your depiction of him at the end of his life when he has dementia and he thinks he's, you know, in the air force, which he loved and admired all his life. And he thinks he's, you know, he's with the queen on the balcony at, you know, at Buckingham Palace after the war. You know, that was, those were some of the most hilarious, but also harrowing uh, passages because the randomness of, of where he was going in his mind, I guess, it's so unknowable. Maybe it suggests, I, I, I found those, those I was laughing at the same time that I was, you know, gripping my chest thinking, my yeah. God, I hope that doesn't happen. I guess we all think that, do we? We don't want what we see happening to our parents to happen to us, even though it's going to happen anyway even though we're going to end up in one room and, you know, by ourselves saying random things and, and, or maybe not speaking at all, like, yeah, we're all going to, we're all going to go there. I, I was um, interested. Um, I quote James Hillman, a youngian at one point who says that um, one thing that grows stronger as you get older is your character. He wrote a book called The Force of Character. He said everything else goes gets weaker, but your character, your essential self grows stronger. And in Martin Amos's latest book, Inside Story, he also talks about that. He talks about um, your destined mood or your mood destiny. I'm not sure what it is, which he says settles in around this age that we are now, mid-60s. Um, and, and you kind of uh, become who you will be from now till you die. Some, you're you're kind of, uh, well, he called it destined mood, which I, I really liked the idea of. And I think about that. I think, well, which, what do I want to be or what can I be or how much control do I have over it? And I think uh, writing The Bright Side helped me see uh, that I, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a there's a thoughtfulness and a curiosity, and um, a, a, a interest in just observing what's right in front of me. I get that from my father now. Uh, that, that you can do. Sorry. 
that I hope to hope to hold on to. Huh. I think that's one of the most radical ideas in the book. It, it, it comes out of a story you tell about your son, Kelly, uh, who as a young kid asks you why he's not in pictures with you and, and his father. Um, and because it's, you know, it's from before he was born and it's unfathomable, unfathomable uh, to him that you exist and he does not. And, and then you then write about yourself in a very graceful uh, segue uh, about being without your mother for the first time. Your mother has died and now you are on your on your own in the same way she noticed when she was on her. There was no one left to go before it was our turn. And But you say that that is somehow freeing, that, that grief is the only thing in other words, what you seem to be suggesting is that when somebody dies, when people peter out, when the when the population of your community, of your circle, you know, begins to lessen, that that grief is is not the only thing you have to feel anymore. That it doesn't, the road ahead doesn't have to be frightening because it can be freeing. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, of course you feel grief when your parents die, no matter how old they are. You know, yes, parents die. I remember when I was a younger woman and somebody at the Globe and Mail said his mother had died. And I said, how old was she? And he said, you know, 78. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, what's sad about that? And of course, uh, you know, my parents were both in their 90s and, and we were sad. But then I kept trying to identify this other feeling that I had. What, what you know? What is this? What am I feeling? And it was kind of a hope. It, it was, it was a freedom. I didn't have anyone else left to measure myself against. Whatever I had left was my life, my choices, my, um, you know, my way forward. I didn't have anyone to conform to. I didn't have anyone to disappoint. I didn't have anyone else's expectations hovering over me. I, even though my mother is still in my head sometimes, it's not quite the same. And um, yes, it, 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 it was a surprise to me, that feeling as well. But, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it, Ian, because so many people have talked to me about that. So many people have said that they realized reading it that they also felt that way, that they, at the death of parents, they also felt free. Now, you mentioned death of other people. I don't know. I, I can't. You know, I I haven't lost um, people dear to me who are my own age or younger, and I, I think that that feels terrifying. Yeah, and is and it, and is not freeing. Yeah, I think not, but who, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was fascinated. This is a question that actually should go earlier to whoever is editing this thing, but um, the thing I love most about your father's dementia. Um, and I used to see him sometimes, you know, one walking on the street and he would ask me where the bank was. And I would say, oh, it's just up the street. And then I would call you and say, I just saw your dad. And you go, what? You know, he's, he's not supposed to be out. But oh, my he favorite thing. That he, Lord, but he figured out the passcode pretty quickly. <laughs> and, he, and he was buying just, you know, crate loads of, uh, of uh, Peter rounds. And, and, you know, he was saying things like, Catherine, I'm telling you, these Peter rounds, they go with everything. You know? I, and that's why I had so many of them. I, I loved that, 
that is the essential optimism of somebody. You know, you, you can lose your bearings, but if you stay in the moment, your bearings don't matter so much anymore. Oh, you know, that's so smart. I'd never thought of it that way, but yeah, he did. He did He did do that, didn't he? He stayed in that moment, in his dementia. He had a very happy dementia. I'd never really connected it to him staying in the moment, but you're right. that There were the Pete arounds, the VO5 hair bomb, that was big. And of course, he'd forget that he already had some, but it made him so happy to go out and get more VO5 hair bomb for the few strands of hair he had left on his head and and um, and he never lost his sense of direction really well I guess a little bit because he'd ask you he'd get a bit lost out in the streets but not not totally not a hundred percent he kind of he kind of knew which way to go this book is a is the story of a year that I think you know judged fairly objectively would have flattened just about anyone there's a lot of stuff that happens, the house, the divorce, the parents, you know, the, your, your best friend, you know, all, the, from, from 40 years ago. I mean, there's all kinds of, of harrowing, harrowing events. What got you through? I mean, what is the bright side that you discovered? I think it did flatten me, truthfully. I think it did flatten me. And I think it um, forced me to stop striving in a way, to stop, you know, being extra executive CEO of my life, let alone my work, to, to I just didn't have the energy or the uh, ability at a certain point in that year to, to live the way I had been living, to keep everything on track, to keep everybody going, to keep everybody happy to you know you do this and you do this and I do this and go 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 I didn't I couldn't do it anymore and that forced me sounds so hokey but um to to just you know contend with what was there and I think that's how I got through because it simplifies everything right it simplifies so much when you're just um uh, where you are and paying attention to it and you know I don't believe like I didn't get closure from the year. I don't believe in closure. I think closure is a bogus idea. I didn't, you know, sort it all out and dust off my hands and and go forward and and figure things out. And not at all. Nothing like that. But um, but I did emerge a, a different person. I I I I do think I. I did something, something fundamentally changed. And that just going back to writing and somehow becoming that other person made me feel compelled to begin to really write seriously. I had written some before, but not in the same, not with the same determination that I, that I then began to write. So, so, so now that you do occupy this eternal present, uh, you know, this, this, <laughs> this, this floating zone, uh, how far into the future are you are you planning? How many years? And 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 what are your future plans? More books? Yeah, I'm already working on another one. And uh, I mean, you know, nobody's asked, but I, nobody's asked me to write it. But I've got I've got an idea. And um, yeah, it, and I'm still working at the CBC. And you know, there's another big change coming, right? The end of uh, 
marching off to work every day. That's that's the big next big change, however that happens and when it happens. COVID has certainly um, made us all see what that feels like, you know, to 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 not get up every day and get yourself out the door and and use transit and and buy lunch at a cafeteria like like that it's been an interesting couple of years in that sense so um but uh and and also i'll just say about covid that in a way um it 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 helped confirm some of the things I learned in the book, which is that my pleasures now are very small. They're very small. Like I, 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 I long to see my sister in Vancouver. I long to have people inside my house for dinner and, and we can hug goodbye. I, I long to be around my children. My son is in Guatemala and can't get out and, um, and those are not big things, you know, those are just very immediate things that, that to me are, are hugely important. I'm getting all sentimental again. Well, somebody, I can't remember who it is now, but somebody once said that one of the pleasures of writing, one of the very few pleasures of writing, in fact, because it's so hard and it's so thankless and it never goes the way you want it to. It never gets the praise you want it to, except I think in your case, at, at least, <laughs> at this moment, um, is that it forces you into the present. It forces you to pay attention to what is happening right before you as opposed to what is supposed to happen. And it sounds to me as if that's that's part of the transformation that occurred, yeah. not only in the year you write about, but in the writing about that year. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Zadie Smith says in one of her br brilliant essays about writing, um, she says... Uh, that there's a certain point when you're writing a book when it's as if the whole world is conspiring in your favor, that every leaf that falls from a tree is, does it in a way that becomes the sentence in the book and, and every conversation that you have and, uh, you know, absolutely everything you observe or see or talk about is, seems presented so that it can go in the book. And, and that is a wonderful wonderful part of the book she also wrote i don't know if you read it in intimations her 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 book short book of covid essays great book yeah yeah she said everything i've ever written about writing forget it she said you know writers love to write about writing and even if you're sort of self-deprecating you all get a bit precious she said what i figured out in covid is writing is something to do it's like baking bread getting a pasta machine. It's something to do to pass the time. I thought that was pretty good. Mm. Well, you did it very well. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. That was Ian Brown in conversation with Catherine Bradbury about her memoir, The Bright Side, 12 months, three heartbreaks, and one maybe miracle. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and you can't go wrong supporting a local independent bookseller. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation and take a moment to rate and review us. The podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. 
and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.